0: Content warning. The Silence Voices Stories of MST podcast discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics related to military sexual trauma. We want to provide a safe space for survivors and those seeking to understand these issues better. Please be advised that the content may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is in need of support, please consider seeking guidance from a mental health professional or a trusted resource. Welcome to Silence Voices, Stories of MST, hosted by Rachelle Smith. This podcast is dedicated to giving a voice to military sexual trauma survivors. Each week, we'll bring you powerful stories of courage, resilience, and healing. Join us on this journey to create awareness, spark dialogue, and drive change within the military community. It's time to break the silence and amplify the voices of those who have been silenced for far too long. Listen in and become a part of a movement that's shaping the future. Voices Stories of MST. Hey there, welcome to another episode of Silence Voices Stories of MST. As always, I'm your host, Rachelle. Today we have just an incredible interview with a Navy commander named Erin Lee Elliott. She is for lack of a better term, just a badass. She is so interesting and has one hell of a story to share with us today. Um, she actually testified in front of Congress and has done a lot of advocacy work for survivors of MST, and she's still active duty. She's a leader that all of us needed and wanted in our time of need when we went through our things. Uh, She has this very calm but wonderful determination in her voice, and this interview blew my mind. I think her story is one that many will be able to relate with just in terms of how it goes. But when you hear her resolve to heal and turn her life around, no matter what happened to her, you're just inspired. There will be some links so that you can see her testifying, and you can also find her bio in the show notes. She is just incredible. You will hear my admiration come through in this episode. And if you want to reach out to Commander Elliott, stay till the end of the episode, and I will let you know how.
1: Hi, um, I'm Erin Elliott. Thank you very much for inviting me to do this, and thank you for doing this and speaking to all the voices out there that might not have a voice at this point in their journey. I'm a commander in the Navy, and I'm still active duty. And uh, I'm just here representing my views, not the views of the Navy or the United States uh, military.
0: Thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate you putting yourself out there, even though we'll talk about it later that you've really put yourself out there. But let's get started with your history. What Influence you to join the military? Was it something where you grew up in a military family or just one day out of the blue, this is what you wanted?
1: Interestingly, I've always wanted to be in the Navy, even since I was in elementary school, but I don't come from a military family. Like my great grandfather was in World War I. But besides that, you know, I have a brother in the Navy reserves. But for some reason, it's just a passion I've always had growing up. And I joked that I joined the Navy because I grew up in an Air Force town, so I'd never have to go back there.
0: You know, that makes sense. As someone that grew up in a lot of Air Force towns, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Since we know that you're now a commander, obviously you commissioned, which route did you take to commission?
1: There is ROTC. It's the same thing for the Navy. But um, no, I actually went through officer candidate school. Um, that was down in Pensacola, Florida in early 2005. and. Any of uh, people that are my age or older uh, right, might remember the movie An Officer and a Gentleman. And that's, that's basically what I went through. You know, Hollywood eyes there.
0: What a classic. That is such a great movie. When people think of the Navy, they think of two movies, Officer and a Gentleman, and of course, Top Gun. What was it like going through officer candidate school and getting through that and then arriving to your first duty station? That must have been quite the experience since you don't really have the military family background to really fall back on to understand what it would have been like before leaving. It was, I mean, it was something,
1: I mean, at the time it, it seemed really hard for me, but officer candidate school just, I think like any enlisting or commissioning program is, you know, to break you down, test you, and then build you back up. So, you know, I, I got through it and then I uh, got, I reported to my first ship. as was out of Norfolk, Virginia in May of 2005.
0: Wow, your first ship. So I guess pardon the pun, but did you feel like a fish out of water?
1: Very much so, fish out of water. They've made changes in the training tracks from if you go to officer candidate school, then you get some other trainings before you go to your first ship. If you're doing my, um, it's called a designator or MOS, uh, surface warfare officer. Um, But I didn't have any. So I, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what to expect. And at the time, there was only three women on the ship, just three of us officers. And then
0: there was about 200 men. I shouldn't be shocked, but I am. What a ratio. Oof, that does not sound fun at all. (laughs) It was
1: very difficult. I had to, you know, back then I had to change my personality because part of my language, you're either a bitch or a slut and senior enlisted men and junior would say things about us women. And it it was a very difficult time, but I loved what I did and I loved the Navy. So it's just one of those things I just, just sort of stuck with it.
0: Since I know the way that the military rumor mill works, it's kind of hard for me to imagine that since there's only three females, that it was able to work the way that it usually does. Am I wrong in assuming that? I mean, it seems like it would be really easy to disprove whatever rumor just like, yeah, no, that didn't happen.
1: You would think that, but people, there are rumors about all of us all the time.
0: I'm sorry to hear that. That's just stupid. And I'm coming from personal experience. I lived through that myself. And anything that people come up with sounds like something out of a movie. It's never anything that's anywhere close to the truth.
1: Yeah, especially because I had to change my personality, right? I'm very just naturally bubbly and outgoing and friendly, But I couldn't be like that because that means, you know, I'm sleeping around, you know, I'm a slut, I'm whatever.
0: I hate that. One thing I noticed about serving was that the littlest thing would be perceived as flirtation and it made no sense. You could literally be like, hey, can you hand me that stapler? And then next thing you know, (laughs) and it really makes you wonder, like, is it that when you go through... Basic training or your officer candidate school—is it something about that period of time that you just lose all social skills? Like, what? What is that? It doesn't make any sense. Is that must be it, right? I have no idea.
1: Like, <laughs> it is. It's like you know. I, I will say it's from my perspective. What I've seen, I believe it's gotten better, but it it, it is still. I can definitely see how it can still be an issue. You know, I see stories of it still being an issue all the time.
0: Oh, absolutely. But what was life like for you after you've made this big adjustment with your personality and, and kind of changed how you approach others? Did that change your opinion or perspective on the Navy at all? Or was it still just, Hey, you know what? That's a part of service. I'm going to keep pushing. It did because,
1: you know, coming in, you know, nothing that you ever go into is what you expect. That's just life in general. You have all these expectations and nothing's like it. And it it did change my view. I wasn't, you know, that bright eyed, bushy tailed, like everything's great and wonderful, but there were still to me, a lot of wonderful aspects about it, if that makes sense. I mean, I've always thought I'll stay in the Navy until it's like not fun anymore. And I only had to stay in four years. And here I am 19 years into it,
0: especially if you're passionate about it, which it definitely sounds like you are. Yeah. And then when you're on a ship as well, you're in close quarters with so many people that I mean, even if they do spread these stupid rumors about you, they are your family. So when you had that experience with MST, was that? Was that actually the catalyst to the personality change that that happened that early in your career?
1: No, that was more the middle, I guess you could say. It was August 3rd of 2014. So I was what's called a department head in my journey. It was my first department head tour. And it was actually, so I was in San Diego. The perpetrator, he was in the Navy, uh, but not on the same ship. And we had dated previously, but we were no longer dating.
0: What a betrayal from the get go. Oh my God, I'm sorry. Uh, to your level of comfort, if you want to just take us through that day or the event itself, and you don't have to go into detail or mention anything that would trigger you, but just so that our listeners understand what it can be like. Okay. So, yeah,
1: so we were, I had been underway the week before and I'd gotten just because of my job, I'd gotten very, li- little sleep and then Saturday I had duty even though the ship was in port I had to stay on there and I only got like two or three hours of sleep so I had very Mm -hmm. very little sleep so that Sunday me and my uh, best friend Dana and uh, this person went to brunch because my friend Dana was moving actually her movers were coming that Monday morning so we had a bottomless mimosa brunch and I think like four or five and they were big mimosas and I don't remember anything the rest of the day And so I remember waking up around midnight that night and like just my entire world had shifted. I felt like everybody was on this old path that I used to be on. And I was on this like new path. I couldn't comprehend what, what had happened.
0: That is so terrifying, especially because it's somebody that you, you were once very close to What was it like when you woke up? You must have been very disoriented and afraid. And can you share what that was like with our listeners?
1: I was actually pet sitting at a friend of mine's apartment in San Diego who lived a couple blocks away from me. And it was interesting because I was supposed to later that week, there's a guy I'd been talking to, a friend introduced me to for several months, a very nice gentleman. And, you know, what my, my friend Dana remembers from that lunch was like, She and I were talking about how excited I was he was coming out to visit, and she said the perpetrator just sort of sat there. I mean, he had no clue about him, because we had busy schedules, and just sort of sat there, like, stewing over it the whole time.
0: And you didn't notice it in all of your excitement? Oh, God. No. Yeah, and when
1: I woke up, I had a text message from the perpetrator who said, it said, I am so sorry, I'm a shitty human being and horrible friend.
0: I can't even... When your eyes saw the screen and saw these words, what was that like? My brain
1: didn't comprehend it. Like, I knew what had happened. Like, I could physically, like, I knew it, you know, and and having been through so much therapy and becoming a victim advocate myself, it's, you know, I understand how the brains respond to sexual assault, even if you're not, like, physically harmed in the sense of, like you have cuts or bruises or anything, your your mind reacts as if you've been violently attacked. And so my body was acting like that, but my I, my brain, you know, looking back, I didn't think I could comprehend it, but I like knew what had happened.
0: When I've tried to explain in the past to maybe a friend or a loved one or just anyone in particular what, the aftermath is like when you're you're spiraling and your brain is trying to figure out what has happened to you. Meanwhile, your body feels the pain and you, there may or may not be physical evidence of what happened on your body and your brain is trying to make this cocoon, basically, to protect you and you, you don't want to acknowledge what happened, but deep down, you you know. The best way that I could explain it was that it was like if you've been through that situation it's like you've been murdered but then you have to live with it the person that you were that day and your whole life prior has died they're gone they're never coming back and the person that you are once you wake up or you get back to consciousness is a homely person that sees the world in a completely different light, and you're almost like a shell. There's there's this emptiness there where your soul and your personality and your love of life used to be.
1: Yeah, it's true. I was actually talking to one of my sailors. Mm-hmm. And he's he's had some um pretty traumatic events in his life this past year. Not not of this, not of sexual assault, but other very traumatic things. And we were, I was talking to him the other day, and he's been in the Navy a while. He's like, I just want to get back to the person I was. And I told him, I was like, you're never going to get back to the person you were. But that doesn't mean you can't be just as good of a person, whatever good in your mind is. It's just different. And that's okay. You are. You will never be the person who you were before that happened.
0: And let's say that you do the work in therapy, you may have gotten on a great medication that works with your body chemistry, and you've moved forward, you've been able to self-actualize and heal, you still won't be that person that you were before. The way that you interpret other people's behaviors, the way that you see the world, even to your DNA, you are fundamentally changed. But I do want to put out there also that that does not mean that you're not going to be happy again. You were just different. You are able to have fun. You are able to fall in love. You are able to trust other people. It's just that you have a whole new perspective now. And I think most people that have reached a place of healing where they've accepted what's happened to them and moved on, they can very easily tell you, What life was like before, and then what life was like after for them. And again, that that doesn't mean that you won't be happy in the future. It just means that life is different. It's kind of like when a, a branch splits. You were going one direction, and now you're going a different one. That being said, I do think it's really hard for people to reconcile with, because there's not really something that they can see that's changed, maybe other than your behavior. But Let's say that maybe you've broken an arm or a leg or you've been in a car wreck or something. They can see that, yes, okay, there's pain here. There's a cast. There's bruising. There's all of these different indicators that something happened to you. But when something like this happens to you on the surface, you look very much the same. Personally, I think I had somewhat of a haunted look on my face for a while, but then... After some time had passed, people would be like, you know, you used to smile a lot. Why don't you anymore? Like, it, it wouldn't register to them that something egregious had happened in my life. So it's very difficult for someone to really understand unless they've had maybe a mental health background or a social work background. Or maybe they've been through some kind of victim advocate training. Because it's it's just something that is so foreign to the human experience until it's not. So you've just woken up, you've seen this text message, and then you have to go to work at some point during this week. And I'm guessing somewhere in this time you reported it. Can you share what that experience was like with our audience? So I was
1: one of the senior ranking people on the ship at that time. I was like the fourth highest ranking and we were actually getting underway. So that was a Monday and we're getting underway Tuesday, for just that day. And because of my job, I should have had to be on the ship. But I I basically told my ex, I was like, hey, I well, first thing I went down and saw one of our junior enlisted victim advocates on the mess deck. She was eating breakfast and I just asked her if she could come by my office, you know, when she finished and she did. And so she came in. Um and she was very well known in the command. She was a great victim advocate, always putting out training, always making it very um well known and well seen. And so she came in and I was like, Hey, is is there a number someone can call if they had sex and didn't want to? And she's like, the DOD safe helpline. She's like, I can give it to you. And I just put my head down and start crying. I was like, it was me and I don't know what to do. So here you have me as more of a, you know, I'm a pretty senior lieutenant. I've already screened for lieutenant commander. And this is a second class in E5. And she handled it great. And she's like, I'm gonna get back to you very soon. And she ended up talking to the SARC and ended up having to have another victim advocate come with me because the one I went to initially had two open cases like trying to you know keep people from being overloaded and emotionally being a victim advocate can be difficult too and so I told my executive officer I was basically like I'm leaving you can't ask me any questions I can't tell you where I'm going and a victim advocate's name is coming with you and you could see on his face like he knew he respected my decision and so i left and we went to the san diego hospital and uh, the military hospital there about boa and i ended up getting a safe exam and it was actually they got me back very quickly my victim advocate showed her victim advocate card and like there was no waiting in the waiting room and but i was probably there a good four or five six hours and it was one of the most invasive exams ever i mean you could ever imagine
0: Mm-hmm. When you go through that type of exam, you truly understand why people wouldn't want to report it and then go through something like that. It is very invasive after you've just been through something so invasive and it, it's just free traumatizing. The sexual assault
1: nurse examiners though were very kind mm-hmm. and they were very nice. You know, they take you somewhere and I, I, I remember this very vividly they take you it's not like you're going to this place that says sexual assault exams you know <laughs> they take you to somewhere else and it was up in the children's area i remember because in the exam like all i focused on is they had wall mural stickies and it was from i was like i know that book and i couldn't remember it and i finally looked it up it was from the hungry hungry caterpillar
0: <laughs> <children's> oh, book. <laughs> yeah but i i'd imagine that on some level seeing something that maybe Even though you didn't recognize it right away, it was something that was familiar that made you feel a little bit better in in that situation. And for my listeners and, you know, also for me, is the reporting process different when it comes to being on a ship or on land? No, it's it's so on the ships, the you have
1: victim advocates there and but mm-hmm. all the sarks, uh, they work on land, but like a SARC will be assigned to a certain amount of ships, like she's the SARC for these three or four ships or whatever it is.
0: Oh, okay. Each of the services handles this differently. So I do like to clarify for the listeners. Just what the experience might be, whether you're in the Army or Navy, Air Force, Space Force, Coast Guard, or the Marine Corps. Can you share what might have been going through your mind once this exam was complete and you were leaving the hospital?
1: Yeah, I was very shell-shocked, you know. I I was just, I I was like, I got to get back to work. You know, I mean, and part of that was, you know, I now know was the control issue is I lost control over everything else in my life. So I was gonna maintain control of that and work was what I had. And I do remember one thing I forgot to add is after I left the ship with the victim advocate, we went to go see the SARC and she, she is a wonderful woman, very, very kind and strong. And I remember, you know, talking to her and so I made the restricted report and filled out the paperwork. And then I was like, they explained the safe exam. And I'm like, well, should I do it? And she's like, well, you know, it's it's up to you. That's, that's your choice. Because that's one of the big things about advocacy, as you know, is giving people those choices back. And so I did decide to go get the exam. And I all I remember thinking was like, I don't want to make a decision now that might take away a decision I want to make in the future. Basically, if I go unrestricted and go on that path eventually, then this will be beneficial.
0: Mm -hmm. For our listeners that may not know, there are two ways to report MST in all of the services. So there is the unrestricted report where you do report. I don't think that you name any names, but you still get all of the services. So if you need therapy, medical, you can get a safe kit, for example. And um, yeah, do you want to share what else is available with that option? you get um, victims' legal counsel, so restricted. And then, if you decide to go unrestricted, that is when names are named, the command is involved, there's an investigation. You usually have um, a specific lawyer, whether that's a special victims' counsel. Um, There's also the victim advocate, the SARC or the SHARP that is involved so that they are there with you pretty much every step of the way. And then you also have access to mental health and a lot of other agencies to support you through one of the worst experiences in your life. And the whole thing is such an experience. It's not one that I think I would wish on anybody because it's it's so terrifying. It's
1: overwhelming when you're bringing yes. a party completely overwhelmed to begin with.
0: Did you have to describe any of this to your leadership at all? I know Unrestricted is different, but I mean, I'm sure there were questions. I know they were curious, even though they know the drill, but people talk. No, it, at that
1: point, the law changed last year, or at least for the Navy. But at that point, if my leadership New, quote unquote, new, then it would be unrestricted. So I didn't have to describe anything to them. Uh, and in fact, I never did to any of my leadership.
0: Uh, okay. I see. Well, that's good, at least. So let's talk about the aftermath of this. You have reported, you've had this exam, and then you have to go to work. And I, I don't think that it's possible, you know, to get back to normal or any semblance of that but you're still expected to function at the level you were before because no one knows what has happened to you even though they know but they're not supposed to know and everybody's supposed to pretend like nothing has happened at all
1: well I there was no semblance more normal and my life was miserable it was just me trying to survive I I was a completely different person. say my brain was a hundred percent then my brain was only like 70 you know I I couldn't I already had a very stressful job just with the long work hours and being on sea duty I I would do things like I lived on a third floor apartment but I would many times check make sure my doors were locked I would sleep in like pajamas and then put sweatpants over them and then turn the AC down really low you know so it wouldn't get too hot just felt like I'd protect myself. I remember, um, you know, I never had panic attacks. I mean, luckily the first time I had a panic attack, I was in my counselor's office and you know, he helped me through it. But people, you know, we'd have to do meetings where a bunch of people would have to come into a small space and I'd be sitting at the table and people would be standing behind me and it, it would, I, my chest would be so tight and so much anxiety. And my friends, my close friends, you know, they could tell Something had happened, and I I told two of them I was very close to pretty quick within the week. What was interesting is I I didn't tell them who the perpetrator was because in some way I was protecting him, you know, because he'd been a friend. Like, my, my brain couldn't figure this out, and I thought they were friends with him, too. But come to find out later, they knew right away. I didn't even have to tell them who it was. They had thought that in their mind.
0: What an indictment of that person's character that they, they knew right away. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. And then you're you're trying to function at work. How was your, your work impacted? Was it affected negatively? It was, definitely.
1: I mean, for me, that was the one thing I had, and that's what I wanted to do. So I did my best there. There was a qualification board I didn't pass, but I I did pass it before I transferred, but not to the effect for me where it affected like my evaluations or anything, but it was definitely, I I couldn't focus like I used to, you know, things would take longer than they used to.
0: During that time, did you use any of the services that were afforded to you through reporting? A lot. Yeah. (laughs) I was in
1: contact. a lot with the sarc i ended up having to get a different victim advocate because the victim advocate i ended up having her dad got very sick and died you know and it was just the boundary you know she didn't feel she could do which is fine i totally support that but i used that i used a therapist you know provided by the navy he was fantastic so yes i i put a lot of work into it <laughs> And then when I started thinking a couple of months later about possibly going unrestricted, my SARCs wanted me to have a very specific victim's legal counsel, Adrienne. And the reason they wanted me to have her is because as a judge advocate, she had actually served on a ship, which is just a very different life environment. And a lot of people like that, uh, judge advocates don't. And so she wanted me to have her as, because you can relate more. He ended up being fantastic also. So I had a bunch of really good services yes that I used a lot.
0: I'm so glad to hear that you found such great support. And you did mention that you decided to go unrestricted at one point. Was there something that led to that decision?
1: It's, that's a hard question. It was just it was one of those things that was it was sort of slow and I'm like, well, should I do this? started thinking, you know, and I was very lucky. Like my support services and my friends never said the, well, what if he does it to someone else? I'm like, well, that's not my fault. That's his fault. It it just sort of became like, what's right for me? What is gonna go good for me? And I'll never remember I was um pretty soon before I did, I actually moved to a new ship before I went unrestricted, a new tour. And tell you I have the best commanding officer I've ever, ever known, ever had. He was fantastic when I went unrestricted and before that I remember talking to another officer on the ship and just sort of telling her about it and I'm like I, I don't know I, I was scared it was going to ruin my career right I was scared that it was going to affect my career that I'd get kicked out and the advice she gave me is like you know 10, 15, 20 years down the line like what can you live with what decision can you set okay with to me that was it it's like for me to be okay is to go out there and put my voice out there and tell my story and wherever it goes, it goes.
0: I can completely empathize with that. And and I applaud your decision because on many levels, it's about taking your strength back and, you know, taking ownership of this after it's something that's ripped so much from your life in terms of feeling like you're in control of it and feeling like you're in charge of your own destiny, like your, your life has changed drastically because of someone else's actions. And that just leaves you to feel like you're spiraling out of control. So for our listeners, can you share what it's like to go from restricted to unrestricted so that they can understand the process? Like, is it more, is it more paperwork? Do the interviews change? How does all of that work? So for me, it was
1: just new paperwork. They took the old paperwork that I had signed and I just signed new paperwork. But as soon as that happened, both NCIS, the Naval Criminal Investigation Services, they were notified right away, which they then notified the San Diego Police Department. Since it did happen out in town, San Diego had its first rights on if they wanted to do anything with the case. So then, yeah, it was a lot of, you know, several interviews, talking to NCIS and San Diego Police Department. They worked together though, so it was just one interview with them and asked asked if they could have a copy of my phone which i was okay with i mean i already you know, I knew what it was on my phone i knew what the text messages were um because one thing i i didn't mention earlier is after i was assaulted and i found out later this is you know very common i th- this person i kept texting with him like asking him why did you do this why mm-hmm. like all of this stuff and because I was just trying to understand it you're supposed to be my friend it's like you your brain it's not immediate that this horrible thing has happened you can't immediately just recognize it and I like I think a lot of people you know probably feel at this point I was like well this wasn't some stranger in a dark alley I don't know this is my friend and so there were a lot of text messages between us afterwards asking him like why why did you do this and you yeah, know, and I was honest with my therapist and people about it. And the only time actually my therapist said he was concerned about me texting or having communication with him was when he told me, he was like, you know, I realized I was in love with you. And my therapist, was like, that he was like, that was concerning because it's that I love you. Therefore, I cannot hurt you mentality. But I eventually just ended that communication. Started thinking about going unrestricted, so I did let them copy my phone. Then I had a interview with the San Diego's district attorney. They ended up not taking the case. So then I talked to the Navy prosecutors. I actually, ended up having a lot of conversation with them. So it was it was just a lot more meetings with different people. Sorry, I mean the San Diego, the Navy prosecutors. Um, so. It was just interview, interviews with a lot more people, a lot more describing things. Did I actually did a pretext phone call with the assailant? So that is a pretext phone call is basically the San Diego detective was there. And so I gave her his phone number and she was able to call him from her phone and listen in, but it looked like and record it, but it looked like it was coming from my phone number.
0: I didn't even know that was possible. Can you share what that experience was like with that phone call?
1: It was very difficult because he basically had no good reason or excuse. He just kept apologizing. She had sort of talked through some stuff for me, questions to ask. And as we're talking, she had me, would write down stuff to have me ask. And I was like, oh, well, did you know I was that drunk? And he was like, oh yeah, like I had to help you across the street, you were stumbling, I had to use the keys, you know, stuff like that. And it's just like, everybody, you know, everybody. a lot of people have those events happen or they do something like that. But that doesn't mean anything can happen to you, but what you should do if your friends or whoever like that, is you make sure they get home and they're safe.
0: Oh, I agree with that. I am the same way, especially if I go out in a pair. I don't care if my plan was to be home by midnight. If my friend is like, oh, I want to stay out, I stay with her unless she finds another friend that she knows well that will also look after her to that level, which I still don't even trust that third party because I don't know them. But I will stay out until they get into an Uber or to their car. And I will follow that car <laughs> until I get home. I know that's codependent as hell, but I have survived some stuff that I do not want anyone else to go through. It's taking care of people you don't even know, but you're making sure it to get them home. Yes, a hundred percent. I think it's because when you've gone through something like that, you understand the capability of complete strangers But not only do you understand that, you understand what people you know are capable of. And that, to me, is a thousand times worse, that you know you can't trust people that you know. So, of course, you go out of your way to make sure that other people don't experience what you have. And several of the interviews that we've done prior to this, the guests have mentioned the same things. Can you take us through that phone call because you're hearing this person's voice and your body of course is going to have some sort of reaction to this because not only were they somebody you knew, that was someone you trusted and now you have to be on a phone with them for an extended amount of time hoping that they answer questions truthfully. And then there's all these people around you too that are listening to this conversation and watching your reaction to these answers.
1: I you know, it was a lot of anxiety. I remember, you know, just my palms being very sweaty, my, you know, felt like my heart was gonna beat out of my chest. I I didn't know what he was gonna say. Like it it was very scary. It was very unknown. But I remember as soon as we were done, it's like hang up the phone, and I was like this almost like just some sort of wave of relief came over me and i my i my um victim's legal counsel uh was there with me too and and she's like deep breath, and she's like, and now you can block him. so then I blocked him <laughs> and it just i don't know just it it was very hard and very scary, but like I said, I think it really it did give me a little bit of relief.
0: I get that. I mean, once you've been able to block this person and they've, it sounds like, answered all of these questions, mostly truthfully, you've gotten your power back and you've taken control of a situation that before had left your life in a complete tailspin. What does the process look like after that? Because it sounds like clearly they've had a lot of evidence. I mean, you have your safe exam, now you have this phone interview what what else follows that it
1: was a very long very long process because i was raped in august of 2014 and it didn't go to court martial until january of 17 yeah so it was a very long time so you know went through the san diego district attorney they decided not to prosecute then went through the navy prosecutors the jags they decided to and it was just a very it was a very long process you know and i was actually in training at that time to go take command of a ship myself out in bahrain so in the middle of all these legal filings and all of this stuff uh, i was in this very intense school and it it was it was a lot and i will say um you know my commanding officer from the ship when i went unrestricted Even though once I transferred off that ship, like he didn't technically have to be my commanding officer for all this stuff. He did, because I was going to like eight schools and there was no point in everybody knowing my personal business. And he was always so protective of me and stood up for me. He's just fantastic. And so we're going through, I I graduate, uh, I get done with all these schools. And my dad had been very sick at the time. And he actually... We thought he might pass away. And so the court martial was supposed to be in April of 2016. I remember one of the many filings in front of the judge. She had made a decision that uh, the prosecution appealed, which I remember her explaining is like, yeah, it happens all the time, but it's not probably not going to postpone anything. Well, the appellate lawyers actually decided to take the case up because it had to do with who can be a Like basically character witnesses you can't Mm -hmm. they changed it the ndaa changed it one year that you can't just have people get up and say oh this person would never rape, rape anybody they're a great sailor you know they have to have other stuff and they did that for basically everything which is a felon which makes sense you can't do that out in normal courts so they didn't know if if It was going to be postponed or not, and then my victim's legal counsel is like, "Hey, they want to use you, but it's up to you." And now looking back, I'm not sure if it was up to me. (laughs) They might have just used it anyway. So, and my thoughts was always going forward was, "I want to do every. I want to know that every. I did everything possible." And so I said, "Sure, go ahead. They can use me." And so it did go up to the the Navy Marine Court of Criminal Appeals. And actually the judge's decision was overturned, which is really good, you know, for other victims was a very good thing. But that meant the court martial got postponed. And then at the same time my dad passed away. So I went to his funeral and then flew out three days later to take command of a ship, not knowing when the court martial would be.
0: <laughs> that is so much for one person to deal with in such a short amount of time. And I'm I'm so sorry to hear about your father. How on earth did you even, how did you do this?
1: I have no idea. You know, I, I honestly have no idea how I did it. I think it goes back to, yeah, it goes back to when I'm a very small child and my mom will still tell you to this day, I'm the most stubborn, hard-headed person you'll ever meet. And maybe that was it. This is the one thing I have. And I was so adamant that I didn't want what someone else did to me to change my life. Looking back, was that the best decision? You know, probably not, because I had a lot going on. It probably would have been better for me to postpone taking command until all of this was done. It ended up being a very my next command was. My commanding officer was the opposite of, the previous one I had. I remember when I checked in with him, he, told me I was like, well, I hope the court martial isn't during important part of the ship's life, and I'm like, well, I'll try to plan getting raped better next time, and. He always had very, it it was always, I was an inconvenience. I remember there's a, there's what's called, it's a case management group that basically all of the people, the providers will get together, like the SARC, the victim advocate, victims legal counsel, NCIS, you know, just to talk about not the specifics of the case, but like, hey, is the victim receiving the services they need? Are there any updates from the police? That sort of thing. You know, and my previous captain would always talk to me about it. it, was great. And this guy was, well, I had to stay at work till nine o'clock because we were in Bahrain and the case management group was in San Diego. He's like, you know, I don't get reception in my house, so you should buy me a pack of beer for that, you know? And just very insensitive. And so when the court-martial was finally scheduled that to leave, he told me this story about he had to relieve someone in command who had cancer you know, temporarily why she got treatment and he'd much rather go through what I'm going through, you know, as in leave the shit for a court martial than have treatment for cancer. And I was diagnosed with a uh, very early stage, you know, breast cancer, pre-cancer, and, and that is very traumatic and difficult and everyone's different. But I will tell you, I'd much rather do that than go through this again.
0: Just the audacity of this man equating the two of them I, I can't. <laughs> I know, right. Earlier, you had mentioned that you were afraid to go unrestricted because you thought it might impact your career. And that is a sentiment that is echoed by so many people, even if they weren't on this podcast, but it's just a thought that everyone has. And for you in particular... You're you're going up in the ranks. You're taking command of a ship, which is a huge deal. And if your career was impacted, what would that have meant for you?
1: Well, I feel like it was in some ways. When I was in command, I was treated very differently than the other ship COs. I was given unfair scrutiny. I was excluded from events for ship COs. I mean, consistently my evaluations weren't what they should have been or what I thought they should have been. And the evaluation for ship COs, it's it's almost like a little railroad, sh- you know, everybody gets goes up and gets better and then they leave, you know, next person. But that didn't happen to me. Um and it did affect my career. Um I screened for some things, didn't screen for other things, but I'm actually very happy in my career. I ended up in a different career path that I'm very happy with. And I'm a commanding officer again, you know, sure. But those were my fears. And initially nothing happened because I had this great support from a great commanding officer, but I, I was scared that I would be judged or treated differently or that sort of stuff. And I was my next command.
0: I hate to hear that especially something like those, those CEO meetings, those are probably instrumental to planning and strategy. Were those meetings mostly male or were there females there as well? What was, what was the situation there? There was one one
1: other female, but, yeah, she was never excluded.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, so I imagine she was one of the good ones because she towed the line, I'm so sorry you had that experience. And when this court-martial came around in in 2017, finally, and you had to be around that assailant and and look at him, what was your reaction like? Like, it it sounds like you very clearly had depression and anxiety and, and PTSD that had set in. So being around him definitely couldn't have made any of that better.
1: I I did. And I remember I wanted to initially, I wanted to sit in during the entire process, but my VLC talked to the prosecutor and she's like, hey, I'll split it with you. But she's like, as a prosecutor, I like the first time the jury sees you to be when you're coming in to testify. And which made sense to me. And so we did that. And I'll say, so my best friend, Dana, the one I was talking about, before she ended up testifying too. And that week, we you know, we both, she was in Omaha at the time I was in Bahrain and we meet up in, in San Diego. And I remember we had this meeting with my Sark, and she had known my Sark just from some work she had done when she was in San Diego. And I was like, hey, I want to tell you something in front of my Sark. And, and I was like, I just want you to know that there is never one second I've ever thought, and I will never ever think that you should have stayed out with us that day after brunch. Cause it really hurt her too. I mean, she blamed herself. She's like, here I was at brunch with you guys and thinking about, Oh, I got to go take all this stuff off my walls because movers are coming tomorrow. Yet the hardest thing in your life ever happened to you. And I was like, no, I like, I love you, Dana. Like, this is not your fault. I've never thought Mm -hmm. that. And so she was there to testify too, but she was excluded. She couldn't stay in after that, after she testified it. I, some reasons I don't remember. So she went before me and then I was getting ready to testify and I was outside the door and my VLC um, and victim advocate were there with me. And I remember like, I was like, can I like run back and say hi Dana really quick? And like, okay, hurry. And so I ran. And I remember just like, she goes into the room and she just stands up and we just like hug each other crying. was like, I love you. And she's like, I love you too. And then I went back and was waiting by the door and I'll tell you, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life was do that, was walk through those doors and take that stand. And I had said goodbye to my dad, knowing I would never see him again less than a year before that. It was really hard. And yeah, he was sitting there at the defense table and I didn't really look at him. Only time is when they asked me to, you know, identify him. But yeah, I was on the stand for probably four to five hours. And honestly, I don't remember m- most of it at all.
0: Yeah, with with such a huge stressor and all of that time, it, your brain is doing what it can to protect you. And you know what? Shout out to our brains for, they're just doing their best. They're doing their best to take care of us. <laughs> they are filling in the blanks with more blanks just because it's best for us to get through our days. And people don't really understand that where when you're asked to describe this event yeah your your mouth might be moving but still what has happened to you is not registering up there above your eyes it's it's just coming out of you and then people don't really know how to take that because at the same time they will see you get triggered by the smell of something like cinnamon and then you're out there crying and having whatever other reactions and they're like, wait, but I thought you didn't remember. So it it doesn't quite add up unless you have experienced that trauma. But all of this is just our brain working to keep us pretty much to keep us on our feet so that we can at least function and survive. Mm-hmm. And you can explain it. I can't explain it. I I truly don't know. I don't make the rules, but that just seems to be how it works. So four to five hours, were you allowed to go to the bathroom?
1: A lot of, they don't show on TV. Mm-hmm. A lot of times is when there's objections about stuff, then a lot of times they'll ask the jury to leave and then all will have to leave. Why they, why the prosecution defense like go back and forth about their objections so yeah i would just like walk around and go to the bathroom and stuff like that and if if i needed a break you know i could ask for one the prosecution's like i, I love her that she's awesome and, you know she was she, she was tough as nails but she was like hey i really if you can try not to take breaks in wrestling you really need one because you know like people We'll be like, it's getting hard, take a break. You know, and she's like, I, I like to keep the woman going and going. And you know, I realize that's her job, right? She's a prosecutor, she's not representing my interests. That's why I had a victim's legal counsel. But yeah, I never had to ask for a break because there was enough uh times I had to get up and leave anyways.
0: <laughs> I'm really glad to hear you had that. And leading up to this particular court martial, did your did your character ever come into question or anything like that
1: no I mean I again I was always concerned I'd been a young younger single woman you know I mean I don't know what what they were going to call into it but they ended up not calling any of that into question
0: I don't think that's something that you hear very often but I'm, I'm glad to hear it so once you've finished testifying, what is the procedure after that? You just you you sit down and everything just kind of happens around you? What what is it like? Does it kind of feel like your life is just passing by on fast forward or is it all in slow motion?
1: It was it, it felt good to be finished testifying and yeah, I, again I don't remember a whole lot about the rest of it. It was just sort of like I'm done like the adrenaline's all are rushing out and you know I just listened to it I, I do remember the sexual assault nurse examiner testified after me and it was really sad because not because of her but it was obvious from it like she she didn't remember me at all and it's because she had done so many cases since me you know she was we obviously had our documentation everything she filled out but that made me really sad and then I remember there was a break afterwards and she was out sort of in the lobby area and i just sort of called her down and i just like wanted to tell her i was like thank you for being so kind to me on the worst day of my life and she's like can i give you a hug i was like yes and so she gave me a hug and then um she asked like well do you mind if i ask if i stay for the rest of the trial i'm like absolutely so there was that and then he actually the assailant took the stand so it was explained to me by the i believe by the prosecution that a lot of times if you're an officer in the navy or you're senior enlisted you're almost expected to take the stand in your defense because it's your fellow officers or fellow senior enlisted who are making those decisions and it's, so it actually happens a lot more than maybe out in the public i'm not sure really how much out in public and so he got up there and testified and it was nothing but lies like it was so obvious like the prosecution destroyed him i mean he just every single lie like her question was like you remember now two and a half years later better than you did like six months after what happened and he's like yes he said that when we had been dating we never sexted never talked about sex or whatever which is a complete lie which they got the text messages and showed them to the jury and it was totally fabricated on so many levels
0: you know I'm no great shakes at the legal process, and I'm definitely not a lawyer but perjury's kind of a big deal, is it not? Yeah. I mean <laughs> oh my goodness i I cannot believe- just the audacity okay, so you you really have to take me through how this plays out, since somebody. Sat there and lied before you, God, the Navy, and everybody.
1: Well, um they found him not guilty. What? And there, and I mean, am i okay. I'm okay, and I understand it, and I understand. I don't say it's right, but afterwards, the jurors could stay and talk to the prosecution and defense, the military defense. Because he hired a civilian one too, and just sort of like feedback: how do we do as a prosecution or defense? You know, what can we work on? What was good? Um, and all of them but one stayed. And usually they're in there for ten or fifteen minutes, and they were over there for an hour because they're like, we know he did this. He lied directly to our faces. But it is not what we know and what we believe. It's like, what does the evidence show beyond a reasonable doubt? And I remember as a prosecutor, she later told me that it's very difficult with sexual assault cases unless there's a sober third-party witness or a videotape. Yeah, I remember it was, yeah, I, I was in shock. I was upset. My two really good friends, Dana and another friend of mine, Francesca, who'd been there through this whole thing with me, we went up. They have Dana's family, who I'm very close to. They have a home in Sonoma County. So we just flew up there. And I remember at one point during the weekend, I just was crying at one point. I'd start crying like, well if he was found not guilty, what if what if people don't believe me it happened, whatever? And Dana's like, the people that matter believe you and know what happened. And if they don't believe you, then they shouldn't be in your life.
0: That is wisdom. That is the wisdom that only a, a really true friend can give. I am so sorry though. That is such a letdown I mean, I, I you had all of this evidence and you have all of these supporters in your corner that, you know, they've seen the difference in you. And then you have that safe kit as well. And then the, the obvious lies on the stand. I, what did that feel like?
1: You know, but you know, that's one of the things that I will say that the SARC and my therapist talked to me about. It's like, yes, did I want a guilty verdict? Yeah but the thing is you can't go unrestricted because your healing is going to be is going to be if you if they get a guilty verdict like your healing and your journey can't be just that one thing I, I believe everyone who does that would like a guilty verdict but that's not you can't hang everything on that it's part of the process
0: i get that one thing i This is something I mentioned in a previous interview, but any time that I had been hospitalized in a female-only unit, it didn't matter the state or city. It seemed like there was this common theme of wanting to watch Law & Order SVU, and I couldn't wrap my head around it because it's traumatizing subject matter. It's what most of the patients Who had mental illness were in there for this was the reason they had mental illness was a reaction to that particular trauma and this is multiple hospitalizations that it it really it it let me understand why they wanted to watch this It, it just it finally dawned on me one day that oh okay this is the only time that there's justice in this kind of situation. It's on TV. They couldn't rely on that from other patients. They couldn't rely on that from the therapists or the counselors or the doctors. But Olivia Benson was up there getting stuff done for women like us. And it was heartbreaking, but it made sense. Real life is just so removed from that. It is. It's funny you did mention that because
1: i really like all the law and orders i really like svu is my favorite and i remember at one point i was like and this was like not long after it's assaulted like don't watch don't watch that but i'm like i i expect it like i know what's gonna happen you know um and, and so i did and i was also also a big fan of mariska haggerty because she has done so much uh work for sexual assault victims mm-hmm. and survivors but it is, you know, they do show, in almost all of these, the bad guy, the quote unquote bad guy, goes to jail, and and that doesn't happen in real life. There's so much different that actually goes on, but yeah. I don't think that would make good TV or get ratings.
0: <laughs> no, that would probably make terrible ratings because it's too close to true life, and people don't want to think about that. And I, for me personally, like I, I can't really watch thriller movies, even if it's. Even if it's not that particular subject matter, but it's it's the build up. There's the tension. There's the music, and then there's that possibility that something might just pop out unexpectedly. And for me, that's a wrap. You got like one cello in a movie for me. <laughs> Other than that, I'm out. I, I can't do it.
1: Yeah, and we all you know we all have you know our different our different mm-hmm. things, our different boundaries, our different ways to comfort ourselves. And, but I do remember it was almost a year after I was assaulted yeah it was almost a here because it was the following August, and I had to get my computer fixed, so I just dropped it off at the mall, and I went and saw this movie, you know, and I'd been watching you know Law and Order: SVU," and I like scary movies and all that. I don't even remember the movie, but it was with Owen Wilson, I think, and they were trying to get out of some country because
0: Oh, uh, uh yeah, I remember that uh, uh, no escape, no, yeah, no escape. I remember that movie, yes. And there was a
1: scene in the garden where they take the wife and they bend her over and they were about, you know, to rape her. And I just, I got that, like, almost panic attack, like, because I wasn't expecting
0: it. My body just still in that protective mode. There was a third date that I had been on once. And, you know, trauma hadn't really been the topic of our conversations yet because it was a third date. But we went to the movies Mm -hmm. and... There there was just this graphic sexual assault scene. Um, I, I tried my best to sit through it. It was like a maybe 30 second, 45 second scene. But to someone who's been through that, that 30 seconds to 45 seconds is like 30 minutes or 45 minutes. And, you know, I I sat as long as I could. I sat on my hands, but then, like, the sweat came over me. I started shaking, and then out of nowhere, I was just like, I have to go to the bathroom, and then, like, ran out of the theater and then just stood outside the doors panicking. When I did finally go inside, once I'd calmed down some, my date was like, hey, are you okay? And I was like, never better. Like, just, you know, completely overselling it because you don't want to let on that something like that has happened to you. It's, it's too soon. It's a very serious conversation. And, of course, you're also in a packed movie theater. Just not the time. But it's very difficult to go into a movie not prepared that and you know in in the, the, the movie rating it usually says something like thematic elements or something like that it's not specific enough for you to know oh okay something that happened to me is going to happen in this movie so I'm going to you know shut my eyes close my ears and you know I'll be none the wiser nope that doesn't happen and I noticed this or this happened to me in a hospital. No joke. I was in the military unit. This was in Panama City. And it was a movie about a haunting. It was a horror movie. And basically what was going on was that there was a family living in maybe a cabin or something. This was like pilgrim times, maybe. Let's call it that. But the father was assaulting the daughter at night and eventually the mom caught on to it. Um, because, you know, the daughter had just reached puberty. But the mom caught on to it and she started doing all of these things that the the dad perceived as haunting. But she was very sneaky and sly with it or whatever. And it came to the point where he got scared so bad that it killed him, basically. And she saved her daughter from him. But nowhere in like the lead up of this movie was this even a suggestion that something like that was going to happen. And it blew my mind and I was like sick to my stomach. I had a really bad reaction to it. And then what, what got me about that situation though was that in this unit, there were plenty of women who had been through what you and I have been through. And that was the express reason they were in that unit. Now, they wouldn't let us watch The Chappelle Show because apparently it glorified drugs and other things that they didn't deem appropriate. Yet, there was a graphic-ass movie in there about a dad raping his daughter repeatedly. Not a good idea. Somehow that was okay for their DVD library. Make that make sense. And these scenes were graphic But it does go to show that people do not take PTSD of that nature as seriously as, say, combat PTSD, where the guys would watch war-related movies. But if they did, there was a therapist and a few other people that would be in the space waiting, ready for somebody to have a meltdown. But then they didn't even know the subject matter of this horror movie the it's just the misogyny, the lack of care when it comes to things that concern women for the most part. It's it's a whole other conversation. It pisses me off, but I I just thought I'd bring that up. I do, however, agree with not hinging your recovery and the rest of your life on getting the guilty put on the other person because it's it's so far out of your control. Healing itself is such a long and up and down journey that truly doesn't really have a destination. It's just that you you keep getting better and, and growing each day, hopefully. But hinging your healing on that outcome is a true recipe for disaster, My heart goes out to you. But again, I am so glad that you got that advice. That is probably the wisest thing and most effective things that you've heard throughout that experience and that period in your life. Okay, so you've got this not guilty verdict for your aggressor. You've had a girl's trip to try and process and recover. And then you have to go back to work you have to pretend like none of this has happened. You, you you can't let on, you can't let this affect your work. And then, I mean, a lot of people, it sounds like they didn't really know what was going on. They, they knew something happened, but they, they didn't have the details, of course. Can you paint a picture for us of, of what life looks like after something like that? How did you feel? How did you react? How did you get through each day?
1: It was horrible. It was even worse. I, I was just so much excluded and just it wasn't as bad as the assault itself, but the way I was treated I, I, and the way I was just ostracized and outcast. And I felt like nobody cared about me. I was just so expendable. And honestly, if I could have gotten out of the Navy, I would have at that point, but I was in contract. And so I couldn't.
0: <laughs> I absolutely hate that because I know the military isn't exactly a bastion of caring and feelings and all of that it's more of a you need to just get over it rub some dirt in it and keep moving because the mission is the most important thing
1: there you know and they told like you know personal information and counseling information i only told you know my commanding officers i told other you know i told my boss they told my fellow commanding officers of ships it was just very it, it, it was horrible, and I, and I think part of it is there's just so much. I do think it's, but I, it is better now. But even back then, there's so much diversity in how you're treated. Like I said, I had that one commanding officer who was f- absolutely fantastic, and I mean he still checks on me to this day. You know, go to bat for me for all of his sailors. You know, and then I have people like this. I know for me as a commanding officer now, like I am huge on mental health. I am huge mm-hmm. on it will not affect your career. We will not judge you. And I'm like I tell people like. I don't like to even call it mental health. It's all health. Like you said earlier, you break your leg, you're gonna go get treated. This is the same thing. And I hope every CEO is like that. I don't every command, but I don't know. You know, it's something that I think there's such a wide variety of. And I'd had such a great experience. I expected that. And that's not what happened at all. In fact, it was it wasn't just an indifferent, it was I was treated poorly because of it.
0: And since there is no real answer and there's, there's no real follow-up to this whole process, there's all these rumors and people start filling in the blanks with all sorts of stuff that is nowhere near the truth. And for you, all it results in is like your your soul is destroyed because this is the last thing you want to talk about. And then what happened to you is one thing but the gossip about it is 20 times worse than anything that could have happened
1: yeah you no know, and it's like for me and in, in my case i already felt so alone and isolated and i know i was very lucky to have like wonderful yeah supported me but i already felt so alone and then when i moved halfway across the world and i i didn't really feel like there's there was one person you know a couple of people that i felt like i could really eye on but nothing at all like I had had, and I I did. I felt so alone.
0: I've been there, sister. So again, you've had this court-martial that did not go the way that at least I expected. You've had to go back to work, and the environment has been toxic. What does life look like for you in this period of time what were your emotions like what did you rely on like how did things get better eventually
1: it it was miserable and I was lonely and like I said I couldn't get out of the navy at that point but I had to start looking at my next set of orders my next duty station and I remember like there were some jobs that were really intense and busy they wouldn't be on ships but just a lot of work a lot of travel and I was like well maybe I should do that and I had some mentors, just some admirals that I, I had crossed paths with younger in my career and uh, for their admirals. And I just reached out to a couple of them and just got some really good advice. They're like, Aaron, they're like, you you need to take care of you. You've been through a lot. You've been on t- two operational commands. You've been very busy. You know, And they actually had, one of them had a another young lady who wanted me to talk to who'd been through something similar and sort of the same similar path. and. I remember one of the admirals, he's like, if if you want me to email basically my head detailer person tells us we're going to go to say where you want to go, let me know. And I will. And I think I should. And part of my thoughts is I wanted to go to Washington, D.C., because I had a couple of really good friends there. And uh, another Dana was going to be just a quick plane flight away eventually in uh, Memphis, Tennessee you know, I thought about it and I was like, I do, I need some time for me and I got to figure out because I I don't think I'll ever promote again. I don't know what's going on. And so I ended up going to DC and it was, it was fantastic for me. I uh, wasn't a very fulfilling job, but I mean, I did fine there, but I really started to see myself as more than just a sexual assault victim. Because for a long time that's all my all I saw myself was. You know, I couldn't see anything beyond that. And I started getting involved in personal things for me. Like I uh ended up running two marathons. I ran the Marine Corps marathon and the Boston marathon. Stuff I never thought I would do. I enjoyed my weekends going even when it was cold and I hate cold weather. You know, I could go to all these different museums and do all this stuff. And I also started working in um advocacy some myself, you know, I spoke to different, you know, victim adv- advocacy classes about my experiences because they like having a survivor in there. Um, my friend Dana was the commanding officer of the Navy element at StratCom for, for so for SAP a month, she had me come out there and talk to all of her command and I became actually certified victim advocate myself. And then I also got the chance just through some friends I knew to meet Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and uh, Congresswoman Jackie Spears, who were working on the role of committing officer in sexual assault. You know, and I, So I was able to testify in front of the Senate Armed Service Committee and the House's Armed Service Committee. And, and, and part of the reason I, I, you know, I just started in the very beginning is because is if I could make a difference, if I could change one person's life, if I could help somebody who's in that loneliness and pain even if it is one person, then it's, it's totally worth it to me. So that's what I started doing. And, you know, I spoke at the Naval Academy, and it's just something that I've got a passion for. I sort of, I guess I, I found my spark again. And again, it's a very, very different path than where I thought I would be. It hasn't always been without its struggles, but I remember my Sark telling me in a couple months after I was assaulted, I, I remember asking her, I was like, will I ever feel better? Am I going to feel good? And she said, Erin, she's like, I can't tell you if you are or not, but I will tell you, I've never seen anybody put in all of the work and not feel better. And, you know, but there are definitely things that's changed. I mean, totally changed my career. I ended up switching to basically reserve management, which has actually been fantastic for me. Like, I'm so happy. I love it. I'm a commuting officer again. You know, I really struggled for a long time about taking medicine, you know, because my brain changed, right? But I just, I was just tired of feeling, waking up, just being super depressed. And it's not like it was a magic pill for me by any stretch of imagination. But finally, a psychiatrist you know, recommended it. And it's been great. I mean, I've, unfortunately, I've, I've gained 20 pounds that I've worked really hard to lose with endocrinologists, with everybody, but some SSRIs, that's side effect. And I jokingly say, I mean, it's a joke, but I'm serious. It's like, I'd rather be fat and happy than thin and miserable. I you know, I get opportunities like this and it's something that I've found a lot of fulfillment in, and I know when I retire, it's definitely a field I would like to work in and have this key field somehow.
0: That's awesome. I'm I'm glad that you've found a new kind of outlet to help process this event and then also help others. When you had your first speaking engagement, did you feel like it validated that happening to you or was there some kind of aha moment you know what not
1: really so I actually did my first one like a little before I left Bahrain because I'd sort of known the SARC there it, we had just talked about some stuff not miss not my case she wasn't really involved in my case but she asked me if I would and so when I was speaking there wasn't a moment like that and I was just like oh how are they gonna take this and you know people filled out their course critiques and you know there's a lot of the start told me she sent me some a lot of good comments but i remember this one day like i think i was in medical not long after that i was just walking or doing something and this guy had been in the class and i i think he was a first class petty officer in e6 you know he came up to me and it took me a second to recognize him because in class everyone's in civilian clothes and everyone's first names and so he just came up to me and he thanked me so much and how it was so impactful to him and it really changed for the better, like his view of being a victim advocate and of advocacy work. And he was so, I don't know, he, it just, it felt really good to me, you know? And that was something I was like, okay, th- this is worthwhile, you know, because I was super nervous. It was the first time I had done it. So it wasn't really an aha moment. It was just some more of like, I am having an impact. And when I've done those talks and stuff before, whether it be the victim advocacy class or the naval academy or strategic command it's always been something like that you know people will write stuff or people come up to me and there was actually when we were at stratcom this commander So 05 came up to my friend dana you know and he's like hey i'd really like to bring my wife because i did like five or six different ones talks you know to cover everybody he's like i'd like to bring my wife i, I think it would be really great for her is that okay and he talked to me and then his wife came and she would gotten out similar situation as yours it was just too much and she was just still really struggling and you know she just gave me this big hug and told me thank you and it meant a lot you know it's very impactful and so I hope that just sharing my story and and my journey and my struggles that it does help people and that's that's why I do it <laughs>
0: I really applaud that. That is such a show of who you are as a person where this experience has become something that you help other people with. Would you say there's anything that maybe you learned about yourself as a person from this experience that maybe you just didn't know you had in you beforehand?
1: I always hated it when people told me I was like strong and brave. I hated that. I was like, well, I don't want to be strong and brave. Like, I just want to be me. But I will say I learned not necessarily my strength because everybody goes through hard stuff. But I, I learned that just pushing forward, doing the work, you can become someone who "Quote unquote, your mind good again and a good path, um, and I've been able to use that. You know, I've had a, a lot of sailors. I mean, it's it's hard. We had two years of lockdowns in the Navy. We couldn't do anything. We've people have tragedies all the time, but I've been able to take that and utilize that to help other people, which is is really amazing. You know, and I've also I've always been empathetic and compassionate. But I will say I am." much more so on on a deeper level, like on social issues and stuff like that, than I definitely was before, because it's like, you don't know what people have gone through. And, you know, and if I didn't have the sapper team I had, and I didn't have my good friends I had, I, I don't know where I'd be. I mean, I, I couldn't have done this without them.
0: It really is important to have people in your court, that have your back, and they're there to support you every step of the way. So if there was a listener right now that is going through the unthinkable, what would you share with them?
1: Well, I'm glad they're listening. I'm glad that they're here and that we support you and and we can help you. There's a lot of different support options out there and whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah, a lot of people, younger people now, are much, they prefer the texting option and that sort of stuff. But no one is going to ever know exactly how you're feeling or what you've been through. But there are people who've been through similar and take care of yourself, put the work in and, and, you know, be honest with yourself. But there are a lot of people here that very much care about you and they're glad that you're taking this time to listen to this, because that shows something, you know, you're looking for that. I want to feel better.
0: I completely agree. And I would also say, keep hope. I, and this is coming from somebody that was completely hopeless. Like the light had gone out of my eyes. I didn't see the point of life because up until pretty recently life for me it was just traumatic event after traumatic event and I honestly didn't see the point of going through that anymore nobody can live that way but if but if you find something that you can immerse yourself in that's healthy whether that's pottery or running marathons and it's something that gives you hope and makes you feel good and it's healthy dive into that hobby or that thing that that gives you even the slightest bit of hope and tell everybody about it ask them to participate in it with you and build yourself up that way I don't think there's a therapist or a counselor out there that would try to discourage you from something healthy that gives you a sense of purpose. You really never know what your life will turn out like, especially if you don't give up.
1: My life, I will tell you, it is so different than what I, everything is different You expect, but because of this, it's very different than I believe where I would have been, but I have a great life, you know, and I'm very happy. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in therapy for this. I, I haven't in a long time, you know, cause it's been over nine years now, over nine years, but I spent several years in therapy and I don't really get triggered anymore. And I don't, you know, I am sensitive to things, but I, I can watch whatever, I can do whatever, but things still happen. Like I, I probably hadn't been any type of trigger and three or four years at all and earlier this year um it was a work weekend and when it's a work weekend in our job it's extremely busy and basically there was someone who I dated the year after I was assaulted and he wasn't abusive physically in that sense but he was very emotionally manipulative and like used me in that sense and when he moved overseas I like would mail him all these care packages and then you know apparently he was dating someone else and he just ghosted me. I remember, so this one Sunday morning, I, I remember, um, you know, my executive officer said, you know, mentioned this new name of somebody. I'm like, what? And in my community, I am now is very small, and I'm like, what's his name? And I go in my office, and I look look this person up, and they they don't work here for me, but it's just our community, small in the Navy, and it was this guy, and I remember, he. he I remember at one point when we were dating, he told me that every man that i ever have sex with is going to be petrified to t- touch me because i was raped and i just i was in shock like i just started crying you know and and my like got that tight chest and i was having a hard time breathing and and i'm like i don't even know why i'm calling I I'm like i love ronnie he's my boyfriend i've been in four years i'm like i'm super happy with him i don't know what's going on and you know and he is awesome great guy you know has a wife he didn't try to fix anything just hey just touch my back rub my back he's like it's 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 okay you're okay and i texted this group of lady CEOs, and i was like can anyone talk and i talked to one of them she's like i can talk and you know she explained it she's like hey like you're still okay you know you're still good she's like he just entered your sphere where you never thought you would ever have to deal or see with him again you know and it it took some processing after that because I was like I thought I thought I'm good but here we are years later and and something that is part of that traumatic event pops back into my life unexpectedly and it was it was just shocking but I was able to get through it I was able to you know talk to people and be okay and I am okay
0: hell yeah I am here for it I love to hear that when you were in therapy, was there a particular coping mechanism that you banked on to kind of get you through those rough spots? So I actually
1: developed a, like if I, if I got like a the panic attack trigger, my therapist, he helped me develop. He's like, he went through what a panic attack is because I'm very scientific minded. I like to understand the the science behind it, why everything's happened. Think about something that can that's easy, but will distract your mind that you can focus on. So I bake fantastic, excellent chocolate chip cookies. Whenever I make them, they call people call them coma cookies, right? Because they're so yeah. good, and moist, and chewy. And they're super easy to do, but you still got to focus a little on it because you don't want to put like, actually put too much salt in and not sugar or whatever. So that's what I did. If something like that would happen, I would focus on, okay, what ingredients do I need to make these cookies? what steps do I need to do? You know, that sort of stuff. And I know that sounds silly, but it actually worked. It was easy enough that I could just pull it really quick. I didn't have to really focus, but it was enough to pull me my mind out of that situation.
0: That's a really good grounding technique. I never even thought about that. A recipe. That's cool. And yes, listeners, if you find a grounding technique that works for you, invest in it. Make sure you practice it because it will come in handy when you are caught off guard and the anxiety comes on and you are in a situation where that is the last thing you want to happen.
1: That situation yeah. I just told you about, like I hadn't used that technique since probably 2017, right? But as soon as that happened, I was like, I, immediately my mind went back to that. So I was like, okay. Breathe, what can I do? Text my friends, find someone I can talk to. Yeah.
0: Yes. Practicing it is something that will become your best friend because as soon as that event comes up where you start to panic, your brain starts looking for all these different ways to make you safe. And Ooh, guess what's there? That cookie recipe that you have practiced mentally dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Okay. So this will be our final question and. You don't have to answer it, but this is what I like to close out our interviews with is if you could speak to the man that harmed you, someone that you once thought was your friend, someone that you were very close to at one point in your life, what would you say to him now that you have conquered so much, you have had a positive impact on a number of people you've testified you've grown and now you are just moving forward in life as a leader that encourages her subordinates to take care of themselves and do what they need and feel comfortable coming forward with something like that. What would you say to this person that did so much to protect themselves without regard to your emotional or mental wellness?
1: I would say, I hope you have found peace because I know deep down, you know what you did to me and I hope you use that to talk to other people, to open other people's eyes and say how you were wrong because I know you have a daughter now and you would not want her to experience this.
0: I love that. I mean, I know you don't want to be called strong, but that there is a very powerful answer. Oh, and I might have lied a little bit. There's one more question. We have to get shout outs for the people that helped you through this situation. Um, Just give them some love. I know they all deserve it. And then also, if there's any organization in particular, that sticks out in your mind that helped you also just give them a shout out so that our listeners can possibly turn to them in the future in their time of need?
1: Well, my friends, Dana and Francesca, you know, I love you. You're amazing. You know, my Sark cat, she was fantastic. My victim legal counsel, Adrian, um, even the prosecutor was amazing, um, Andrea, and, you know, my therapist, Andrew. But There's also a lot of other people out there that deserve it, but I don't think you want to add 20 more minutes to this. (laughs) I will say that the one uh, organization I did work with when I was doing testifying and had some meetings with were Protect Our Defenders, and I think they're a fantastic, fantastic organization with some really great people.
0: Just now in this interview, looking at you, I see this brightness, this determination, this example of what someone should strive to when they're healing. I see that this woman is not perfect, but she is doing what she can with what she has. And that is honestly the best that could come out of this situation, like we said before, is that you were trying to help others come out of that terribly dark and alone place you're just ready to take on the world and getting to that point after being so low and blaming yourself, looking for all of these answers that are never going to come. Like I I really, I'm so glad that we got to talk. I'm very impressed by you. I'm adding you to my list of heroes. This list just keeps growing and growing with each interview that I do. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that was Commander Elliot. Again, isn't she just a treasure? Oh my goodness. I left that interview smiling and just so motivated to continue what I'm doing, and then just happy that there is another leader out there that is doing everything she can to help others. There are so many people out there that want to see you heal, they want to see you succeed, they want to see you get better. So if you are in Aaron's shoes right now or my shoes, please don't give up. There are so many people that love you that are ready to support you at the drop of a hat. Also on the website, I'm gonna put up clips from Aaron's testimony so you can see her being a badass in action because it is quite the video to watch. Um, so if you do wanna reach out to Commander Elliot, course, you know there is the "Salute Our Survivors" link. If you go to the "Listen Online" tab on the website, scroll down a little bit, and click that, and send a message along. We've gotten some really great messages for our survivors. So please, if her story touched your heart, let her know. It's again very difficult to come on this show. All right, and next week we have an interview with a former Army drill sergeant. She joined. the army in the end of the 70s and her story is one that you don't want to miss that is it for us here at silence voices again i'm your host rachel smith and as always i invite you to stay safe be kind and take care see you next time thank you for tuning in to silence voices stories of mst your support means the world to us To keep these important conversations going, we rely on your generosity. Consider donating to help us continue to shed light on this crucial issue. Visit our website at www.SilenceVoicesMST.com to contribute, get involved, and join our community. Together, we can make a difference. Stay tuned for more inspiring stories, and remember, your voice matters.